Jerry Ratcliffe with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Hans Maynos is the Executive Director of the City of Philadelphia's Police Advisory Commission. We have a timely talk about police oversight, use of force and accountability. Welcome to another episode of Reducing Crime and another theme tune from a classic cop show. Well, in this case, classic seems a tad generous. The theme from the last episode, episode 25, was the streets of San Francisco. The theme from this episode opened a show that ran in the 1980s for five seasons, but I'm not sure that's necessarily a mark of quality. Keeping up with the Kardashians now has 18 seasons. Anyway, did this month's theme ring any bells? Speaking of ringing bells classic segue. For this month's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Hans Menos in Independence Square in the heart of Philadelphia. Independence Square is a stone's throw from Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, and the site where the Declaration of Independence was first read aloud in public. Hans is the Executive Director of Philadelphia's Police Advisory Commission, tasked with enhancing the relationship between the police and the community. They provide recommendations on how to improve policing in the city by analysing the policies, practices and customs of the Philadelphia Police Department. Hans has an extensive background in social work, having been the Programme Director for a Domestic Violence Awareness Project working with domestically violent men, a Director of Youth Services in Brooklyn and a Senior Director of the Safe Horizon Crime Victim Assistance Programme in New York. He came to Philadelphia's Police Advisory Commission in 2017. He has a BA in political science, is a Master of Social Work, and is working towards his PhD. We had a socially distant chat on a couple of park benches and talked about the challenges of police oversight, Black Lives Matter, use of force, and different ways to move police accountability forward. The one thing I was wanting to ask you about is how to pronounce your name. Hans. Hans. Yeah. And the last name? Menos. Menos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because uh, my dad's name is Hans Menos. So I'm not, well, I'm not the first one. There's two of us. And many of the people who want to c- come after me on Twitter have actually <laughs> came after my dad. So just a note on that one. But I always make the joke that um, my dad is a one of nine and he's the, the last one. So this ran out of names. <laughs> but uh, my family's from Haiti. It's actually a, a fairly common Haitian name. There's, I actually know a few other Haitians named Hans. The first time I met you, I saw your name. I was kind of half expecting like a little German guy. Uh-huh. Not at all annoyingly good looking Hispanic guy. <laughs> well, it's funny. This is like the conversation I've had so many times, how many interviews I've gone to, where people expect a Nordic guy to come out because Manos yeah. can be easily considered Greek, right? And so folks generally have decided that some version of a Greek or Nordic man is going to be at their office. So I, I surprise everybody when I show up for job interviews or whatever else is happening. I, you know what's funny? I don't have a son. I have two daughters. But I've always said if we have a third and it's a boy, I would name it Hans. There we go. Uh, yeah, so I like the name. And so you like number two. You're going to set the standard and then see, you know. Yeah, I wonder if my wife will go for it. She's So far, she's supportive. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you started doing social work, didn't you? You were a forensic social worker. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine what it was like because you were working with domestically violent men. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what that was like. So I I started off working with victims of of domestic violence. And what you'd find in in those settings is how many folks had either gone back to their abuser or had a lot of repeat, repeat offenses and felt like what they were really wanting was not to leave this person, but was to make them better, to solve this problem, so to speak, of their day-to-day violence. 
So I got in my head as an idealist that I tend to be. We all like that when we're young, right? <laughs> right, right. That this is a thing I could do, right? I could do this, and as a male social worker, I was uniquely positioned to do it. Right. I went to some trainings on it, and I bought, some, I bought a bunch of books, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Those books will never get you. No, no, you know, to be honest, they didn't. <laughs> and, 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 and as somebody who's written a couple of books, <laughs> that's just warming to my heart. Thanks, and, mate. It, I mean, and honestly, it's because they all kind of acknowledge that there's a healthy percentage of people that aren't, this is not going to work for them, and that we're talking about, in many cases, folks who are master manipulators. So, you're not, you, you are, if you're talking to them, and, and I know this firsthand, I've, I can't tell you how many people who have beat their wife to a pulp that have cried in my office and made you want to really like hug them, only to really do it again. That must be amazingly frustrating. It was frustrating on so many levels, uh, and I think, uh, if I'm being honest, some of the frustrating part in retrospect is my own contribution to it, and that is offering this idea that this person has changed, can change, or worse, that what they've done to their spouse should be separated from their relationship with their children. All right? And I made that argument on more than one occasion that this guy is great with his kids. His kids love him. Why are we commingling the two issues? And that was incorrect in many ways and sensitive in many others and probably in a smaller number, you know, okay to say. Uh, but I, in retrospect, that's probably one of my bigger regrets in terms of like that time of my career work. Yeah. But it must have given you some real insights because I'm guessing some of these people came to you at least initially through policing. Well, right. You know, honestly, the, the bigger influence on police for, for me was my juvenile justice work. You know, I worked in, in diversion and juvenile justice for, you know, about three or four years. And when I was working with those young people, I was dealing with a group of people in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and East New York, Brooklyn, and Coney Island, Brooklyn. So these are kind of, in Philadelphia context, like East Kensington, North Philly right. type neighborhoods, right? Economically challenging. Yes, yes. Underserved, yes. so to speak. And, you know, these are kids who, yes, yes, their schools were failing, and yeah, the social services weren't there, but also the police that they had in their neighborhood, they did not trust and they had real problems with. This is the height of stop and frisk also in New York City. And so that's really when I first started saying to myself, you know, as a kid from the Burbs, you know, there's a much different issue with policing here in the city that I'm working in. And I need to, you know, think about this as someone who wants to think about macro practice, how do we help our young people from getting involved in the system? I think you've missed your chance to get a nice cream. Yeah, well, I probably. <laughs> so I remember at this time, raise the age was kind of a conversation in New York. So in New York, the age of criminal responsibility was 16 at the time. And so what we were hearing kind of anecdotally was that the like, kids on Long Island, when they were arrested for you know, a petty theft or an, an iPhone theft or something like that, the police would look at them and say, well, I'm gonna bring you home because if I arrest you, you're gonna go to adult court. And then we'd hear like the same thing happening in, in Brooklyn, but the cop would say, those are the rules. But I remember thinking, you know, this is how I experienced policing as a kid in, growing up in the Burbs in New Jersey. I often had police officers, not that I got in a lot of trouble, but when I did interact with a police officer, they were more likely to tell me to go home, follow me home, and make sure I, that, they, that they dealt with it in that way. And so I almost assumed, you know, well into my adult uh, life and probably through my graduate degree that this is how police acted. So juvenile justice and social work, a really interesting time. I know we're going to get into talking about the police advisory commission, mm -hmm. but I'm really interested in your insights right now as to is this a time are we able to shift so much of the police work that people are talking about over to the social work side? I mean, in places like Seattle, they're talking about cutting the police department's budget by 50%. Right. And I worry that 
we can cut the police budgets instantly, but how long will it take these other social services to ramp up? And do they right. really want to do this? That part is an amazing question. I don't really think that we're ready for just a defund and refund, right? So we can't just defund one area and expect the other area to pick it up. I also don't know if it's fully solving the problem that we think it's solving. I think the, the primary problem it solves, certainly, is that whoever we send won't have a, a deadly weapon on them. So if it's just stopping the use of deadly force against folks that is unnecessary, maybe we'll solve that problem, all right? However, I, as a social worker who worked in juvenile justice, uh, who worked in victim services, and who worked in the family court system overall, those are incredibly racist systems on their own right. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, juvenile justice, it's no secret, the problems that go on there. Child welfare, the removals are just as bad in terms of racial dynamics, in terms of the, the, the numbers uh, and the racism that exists there as any police action, like police stops, anything else. I mean, they, they trend in the same ways. When we talk about police shootings and how they've gone down and how police actions have gone down over the last few years, the same was true with child welfare removals because they had to work really hard to understand that we're too likely to remove a child from a black family than from a white family. Do you think they were getting the same level of scrutiny that policing gets? You know, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. As a parent, if you were to ask me what would be worse, I mean, assuming I live through a really harmful police interaction, a shooting or whatever, or you take my kids away from me for a week, I'd say give me the police interaction 10 times out of 10. So it's worse in many ways, except for the deaths. I'm not trying to minimize those deaths. Right. But the impact that a frontline social worker can have on someone's life and on a child's life, on a family's life is immeasurable. It's just not as acute. Uh, and, and there's probably, if it's being done right, more oversight on that person uh, in terms of their decision making. But that doesn't mean that we've made good decisions in child welfare. And so if we take these same frontline folks and make them in charge of some of these other interactions, I don't know that we're going to get much better decision making. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try it. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that there's not a real validity to this. And I don't want this to read as saying, let's keep police the way it is. I think we do need to reconsider things. But I think to your point, if we're going to do this, it's not just simply or defunding and then adding and shifting that money to another area. We have to prepare these folks. We have to make them make sure that they're aware of what they're doing, really train them, really assess them that we haven't done with policing. I think more the part that I think concerned me was people who enter social work are necessarily geared up for that frontline, holy shit moment as you're knocking on the door and you have no idea what's the other side of the door. And secondly, if they are, you'll cut the police budget this year. But I think it's going to take years to get people recruited and trained and equipped and out there and experienced. And I just worry about the, the learning curve for the first year or two when we may make these massive changes and we're probably not going to do a decent job of evaluating whether we really do because people are bought into them. They bought into this as the ideology. And when you buy into the ideology, you don't necessarily want it evaluated. I think you're right. And I think that what's, what we're going to be looking at, if we don't do it correctly, is this situation where police lose the funding but maintain all those, all those same responsibilities. Yeah. That would be a real nightmare scenario. If we had police officers with, you know, 20% less resources, but all the same responsibilities that, that they can barely handle now. So I think that's correct. And to your point, I don't know if a social worker right now is prepared to be up, not get up, but already be up at 2 a.m. to respond in January to a person who's been shot in the street and their family is being really upset or a mentally ill person who's having an episode but isn't violent. 
I don't know. I don't know how that works in practice. And again, I wonder about the frontline staff. Are we recruiting from a much different pool of folks than the folks that want to become police officers now? I don't think so. Yeah. Are we recruiting the same type of people that people seem concerned with? Now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you raise a good point. Who wants to be up at two o'clock in the morning doing this kind of stuff? Yeah. So it'll end up being that's the time when you need it, but you'll end up having police being the backup most of the time. But you've taken away the police funding for that, but you're actually still asking them to go out to turn up to at least 50% of these incidents. I think that's exactly correct. And so like, I appreciate the theoretical ideas about defunding the police. Yeah. I just wonder about the practicality of doing some of it. And I think that it's doable, but to your point, it may actually end up being that we can't defund unless we've gotten it right. Because what do we do for that two-year ratcheting up period? Well, you've also got, you know, you've worked in social work, the sheer frustration of the lack of resources. I think the cops would be fine in some cases, probably not fine, but grudgingly accept taking on the role of dealing with people who have mental health problems if you could provide the resources. I mean, I was just reading the newspaper, a county on the eastern shore of Maryland just built a new mental health facility. Mm. And they can take, you know, hundreds of outpatients a year, but secure beds, they have 16. Mm. And that facility costs $30 million. Wow. Now you scale that up to Philadelphia to what was actually required, because if we don't do that, these people that we're going to hire for this position are going to run into the same frustrations the cops have, which is, I'm stuck with this person, I've got nowhere to take them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the structural issues that are facing us go far beyond just who the first responder is. Right? And I think that is something that we've missed as a country and certainly as a city for quite some time now. What are we doing in order to actually support the folks at the front line? And again, I'm all for police accountability, and I do think the police might be the wrong group to respond to some of these. Police I think many police would agree with right. you as well. Yeah, I think that's where we have some synergy. But how would the police response look if they did have the right resources surrounding them? Are you finding that a lot of the things that you're looking into in your role as the executive director of the Philadelphia Police Advisory Commission? I mean, tell me a little bit about just what that entails. What, what do you actually do? Yeah, at the PAC, the Police Advisory Commission, we focus on the policy, the practice, and the custom of the Philadelphia Police Department. So we operate in many ways in a similar way to some of the IG models of oversight around the country, which is that we are focusing on policy and practice issues. Customs are really just like more informal policies, right, informal practice issues. And so what we're looking to do is understand what policies and practices affect the relationship between the police and the community. How can they be improved? How do they exist? And where are they working better? Or where do they exist but don't exist around the country? And when you look around the country, there we go. If anybody was wondering if we were outside Independence Hall, that's uh, three o'clock, everybody. Three o'clock. Is that, is that what happens? Independence Hall. I, I got to blame the producer for not knowing that was going to happen. That was really <laughs> shit timing on my part. <laughs> At least it's not 12, right? This is true. So when you look around the country, are you finding that the problem is policies or because people are just not following the policies? Yeah, I think it's a hybrid, right? In, right. in some cases, we'll look at a policy or a practice and it's great in writing or very good in writing. And then you look at the implementation, how it's, how it's being tracked or, or if it's being measured or not. Right. And you realize that's the problem, the implementation and the measurement and not necessarily what's written down. We did an eviction policy here. So the evictions in Philadelphia, as you know, are a big problem. The issue was that the police policy and directive was great on this. But most police officers, when you ask them, including supervisors, because I got involved in a bunch of these, would say, no, 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 that's the sheriff's department. We don't get involved in those. Right. They were just completely incorrect. So that, that's a good example of where policy is good, but the practice was not. 
Is that a training issue? Is that a culture issue? How do you fix that? Yeah, it's a complicated one. I do think that we rely on our supervisors to catch these issues, right? So our corporals, our lieutenants, our sergeants should be the folks who catch it. So it's really a problem for me. It's a separate problem than a patrol officer not getting it when a supervisor kind of co-signs this work. So I think on some level, it's too much for a patrol officer to get. Right. But a supervisor, we're expecting them to know more and moreover, we're expecting that they are willing to do something simple like look it up. Right. And I've asked a few folks in real time, acute situations, could you look this up before you've kind of put the rubber stamp on this? I've gotten a bunch of yeses, but I've gotten far too many no's to that. I know what I'm supposed to do here and it's not what you're describing. And so it's uh, it, There's it's a, a sergeant just trying to bullshit through. Right. Right, and, and listen, we all do it, right? We all do it. We've in our done day. it a few times. <laughs> right, right, we all do it. I actually think you would. You're actually one of these kind of switched on people who've got your act together. I've bullshitted my way through half my life. Uh, no, no, it's, uh, trust me, famously, I've bullshitted quite, through quite a bit of things. And uh, you know, it, if you do it with enough confidence, that it, helps, you, you sound it? Yeah. like you sound like you know what you're doing, you can go on. And if no one's checking, which in this case for these poor sergeants, I was, you can get away with it. <laughs> yeah. The pack also gets involved in some of the more high-profile incidents that happen in the city. That we do. The, the things that I'm sure as soon as the commissioner picks up his or her phone goes, oh shit. Yes. That you've often released in-depth reports into some of the oh shit moments. Yeah, we have, but and we try and wedge it into how it affects the relationship between the police and the community. Try and pull out large-scale issues. If a, if a police officer does something that's incorrect and it's a high-profile incident, I'm not terribly interested, or I'm interested, but I don't, I don't consider it my lane to, to talk about discipline that that officer but I will kind of have a how did we get here conversation or how do we prevent going back here conversation, right. uh, to put it kind of plainly. So we do do a bunch of those. Uh, with the exception of our GVI report. Which report's that? GVI, so Group Violence Intervention. This is a report that highlights how we're going to use uh, what's formerly known as Focus Deterrence, now Group Violence Intervention, uh, here in Philadelphia. It's what we pretty much all known as Focus Deterrence. Yes, it's, it's effectively this idea that a small number of folks or actors are actors drive violence and that we can pull levers, and I just use the air quote mark, to get them to stop. It always works well in podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, what we found, these initiatives have violated civil liberties, have led to over-policing, have led to a, a disconnect between the police and the community, and we felt like it's a good opportunity to provide guidance as opposed to criticize on the back end. So that's what we did here. We kind of just said, here are some lessons learned from across the country because some of the civil liberties problems and the list-making problems uh, we, are things we think we should avoid. I think some of the problems of making these lists are they're never going to be perfect. Right. We, we start to get into essentially crime prediction at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the concerns that come with it are, look, there's a few people on this list that shouldn't be on this list. And they should always be looked at and always be improved. But I think if we're striving for perfection, we may never get right. there because you're dealing with human nature is one part. Mm -hmm. The question also is, is it better than how we did it before? Well, you know, in, in many ways, it's kind of like its own depolicing argument, right? They're, what they're effectively saying is that we want to identify these guys through law enforcement, but really let social services take over the intervention. Are we funding that appropriately? I'll let you look at the budgets. Uh, I don't know that we are. We'll see, the, the, we'll see what goes on with that. And also, to your point before, uh, when someone's on the list, if it's an imperfect list, we're all okay with that. I'm okay with that. But at what point do we call it and say, right. you've been on this list three months, we can't justify it anymore. Adios, senor. And that's a great idea in terms of transparency, which is what, what do we want the rules to be? How do you get on the list and how do you get off the list? 
Right. And so that, that's one of our principal recommendations is due process. You know, if I'm on the list, can I challenge it? And who am I challenging it to? And it can't be the same people who put me on the list. It has to be another, even if it's in the police department, and at least another unit or somebody else that can say, okay, here's the evidence that got Hans Manos on this list that is making him be stopped more often. And when he is stopped, making him be treated differently. Yeah. I know you listen to Thomas Apt and you're yes. familiar with his work. There is a role for focusing on there are a few people in our community who are, deserve our love and attention. Yeah. I mean, listen, we're in Philadelphia. The violence here is outrageous. You know, I can't tell you. I, mean, you, you, I can't tell you. You know all about it. How bad it, it gets here. We're, we have children being killed. We have uh, retaliation shootings. Uh, and I mentioned retaliation shootings because those are the ones that we say we can predict and that we can prevent. We gotta do something. I'm not one that says that we, that we shouldn't do any of these efforts that are evidence-based, but I think doing them smart is the best way to do them. You've looked at other ways to do levels of police oversight around the country. Your commission at the moment has even built into the title advisory. Correct. How does that work in a city like Philadelphia? Yeah, it really depends on what you want. If I go and ask the rank and file, I know what they want, right. I know what those guys want. If I right. ask the commissioner's office, I know what her department probably want. I, you know, and I, you ask the city, they really want something else. How do you deal with being pulled left, right and center in different ways? Well, you know, it's funny. I think that consent decrees, not that I offer those, right? But consent decrees offer police chiefs a real easy way to push reforms through that they may have wanted. No one calling them the bad guy. That was the DOJ who was the bad guy. No one calling them uh, too tough. The, the federal judge overseeing it was too tough. Well, it's funny you mention this because my last episode was with Danny Murphy. I love Danny Murphy. Deputy Commissioner in Baltimore. And the whole episode was about consent decrees uh, and how the bloke looks like he's 12 years old. Exactly right, first of all. And he's probably one of the more generous guys with his time. So I was in a conference in New Orleans and I said, hey, uh, do you have any time randomly? He's like, well, if you come here from this time, this time. Anyway, he made like an hour and a half just to kind of talk me through. And I still have learned so much from the way that they handle things like procedural justice and body-worn cameras and how they use those that I was actually talking about today on a conference call about how we are so woefully behind as a city and the way that we utilize body-worn camera footage and how much more we can do to assess what's called lawful but awful and to assess training issues and to really push things forward. And all a lot of that comes from just my meetings and readings of what Danny Murphy sent me. He's a great guy. <laughs> well, I think what they also did in Orleans is that they've invested significantly in all the people that are required to sit and go through body-worn camera right. footage to contact supervisors and say, hey, here are the seven things you need to sign off to say that you've looked at all this kind of stuff. Right. And that's, that's expensive. It is not more expensive than a lawsuit. Right? That's the answer, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that oversight, and I say this kind of, it's my new catchphrase, it's even on our, on our letterhead now, that oversight is public safety. And so those cops who are playing that role are providing just as much safety as a street cop who is responding to calls for service. I'm not saying it's the same level of danger, but I think that both are contributing to our a safer city through their work. If we can really accept that, I think we'll be better off. Obviously, what drives a lot of this underneath is accountability. Mm -hmm. Are we doing it, police accountability the right way? Is there a, is there a perfect right way somewhere? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure about a perfect right way, no. Uh, but are we, could we do, be doing better? Certainly. A lot of accountability really sets expectations, right? So it's unfair to folks to say, well, we're going to hold you accountable for X, Y, and Z whenever being clear with the expectations. Then the back end really needs to be, what I like to say is just calling balls and strikes, you know? We infuse the personal. Oh, well, he's a very good guy, or he's a very hard worker, or he, he does a great service and this is his one mistake. All of that's true, but I think that when we call a ball and a strike on a bad act, we can leave that conversation for the, the disciplinarian. Who's the person who's meeting out discipline? And they can take all mitigation into, effect, into, into account. 
but the proper investigation and the swift response is what's going to increase accountability and it's going to make the residents of any jurisdiction have more confidence that their police force can police itself, which is something, again, that I'll point out is unique to policing. Not a lot of places get to police themselves. If they don't do it right by really providing transparent access to these investigations, then what we're forced with is folks who believe that police accountability, internal accountability, is a farce. So nationwide, what have we seen? A lot of folks are looking for external accountability. They, they want oversight boards to take over. Do you think they would actually do a better job? I mean, one of the, the arguments that I've heard, more from overseas where some of the police departments have more internal stuff, is that if you're investigated by the cops, they know all the little tri tricks and the tweaks that you can do. They know the, the ways that you can kind of get around the system and somebody external doesn't have that kind of level of knowledge. I think there's a learning curve, right? Would that still be true 10 years after the body starts? And I don't think that's the case. But my colleagues around the country that, have, that do this work, uh, Chicago probably being chief amongst them, have a few things that are critical. And one of those is direct access. One of the things that I suffer from and New York City uh, suffers from right now in terms of body-worn camera is that they have to ask the entity that they're investigating for the footage and for the data. Oh, and they can, they can slow roll you. They can slow walk it, they can, they can claim privilege, they can say ongoing investigation, whatever it is. And that's even with good policy in place. If it's direct access, then it's direct access. There's no conversation about it. And there's nothing to worry about. The second is, you know, very clear powers. You know, again, it, it can't be a debate. Uh, one of the things that I suffered from recently was I said, I told someone that I wanted to interview them. And they said that they weren't going to come to an interview. They just turned around and said no. It's a lot more complicated than that, and sure. I, think, I think we're resolving that. But the point is I have to resolve it. Unlike internal affairs, if they were to call a police officer and say, we need you here by 4 o'clock, that officer is there at 345. Hans, is there a collaboration model? Can you work in conjunction with internal affairs? Or will it only work if you have a completely independent investigative capacity? There are audit models that really are akin to this. And that's a model where the oversight body audits alongside for the cases that they choose and is given a 30-day or so review period for all cases. So if there's a thousand cases and there's a hundred person office, obviously they're not going to audit everyone closely, but there are, those models exist. The challenge is that people aren't that patient. Right. So folks want a frontline investigator to go on from the beginning and not to pick it up at the 100-day mark or the, in worst cases, the 365-day mark, so a year in. Okay, so that brings me to another way of thinking about this that, that I think worries some cops. If people aren't that patient, how do you avoid like the Twitter mob and the rush to judgment that everyone is guilty on the first bit of video that gets uploaded to TikTok? And some of that's easier than others, right? There's some, uh, the George Floyd event. I don't uh, think anybody's disputing right, that one. Exactly, right? And so we can take some of these incidences and, and really put them away, all right? But some of my training has looked at how unreliable video can be. But I, I think you're correct that folks generally want some resolution that's fairly quick, but they're willing to be patient. I don't know that what we've expected folks to do in the past is reasonable. We had a police shooting that was a year old this May and only recently got the client as prosecuted over a year later. It begs the question for all those involved, why did it take a year? And the reason why people are impatient is because of the lack of, of legitimacy that we've had, Laquan McDonald shooting. Why would that video buried? And why did it take so long to get that? 
So this is a self-inflicted wound by governments and police departments. You know, I think it's a bit of a tired excuse to say, well, you know, people aren't gonna get this. I think it's the opposite. What we need to do is, if it's gonna take a year, we have to, at the 30-day mark or at the whatever mark it is, explain why it's taking so long and continuously give as much information as possible. And if that means that we are offering somebody technical jargon or something that we think they won't understand, that's fine. Are we resourcing this whole area well enough to be effective? Police oversight? Yeah. Oh, I think certainly not. Uh, and, and here in Philadelphia, I mean, I think, you know, internal affairs in Philadelphia, if they were to break off and be their own department, they'd be around $21 million budget. My budget's $540,000. Well, you just must be rolling in the dough, aren't you? Right, it's a seven-person office. We went down from 11, which is the height of the size of the office. Other cities have kind of figured this out. Chicago, as I keep mentioning, but New York as well, and other jurisdictions around the country, just tie it to the police department's budget. Right. They come up with a percentage budget. If they defund the police, then they defund the oversight agency. But the zeitgeist at the moment, this is important. It's important, and I think the biggest mistake that, I, that we've seen in oversight over the years has been Newark, New Jersey, where they created a very powerful office and gave them a $500,000 budget. That office was literally unable to even defend itself from lawsuits. As a result, no longer exists. So it gave them power, but no money, no resources. Exactly correct. All right. We can create a great office, gin up folks that think that this office is going to take over and then not fund it appropriately and just create more government skepticism and more of the same for the police and for the oversight agency. I mean, in Philadelphia, it's really difficult to get rid of bad cops, but I think this is an issue across the country. Do we need to reset the balance on accountability? There is something to be said about the state level issues and trying to reset those. But I don't really believe that there's nothing we can do at the state level. The reality is that investigations and the, and the diligence that occurs on the discipline on our end has improved and still needs to improve more to not really give the FOP, as they put it, a slam dunk or an easy case to win. The Fraternal Order of Police, which is the police union, are incredibly powerful in the United States. I right. never appreciated that until I came here. And once I started finding out how much power they wield politically, I couldn't believe it. Without them, there's this unreasonable amount of deference to police already, right? Many folks already want to believe in the ideals that, that all police officers are these unwavering, incredible, diligent public servants that would not ever do harm. That's just what we want to believe. And so you, when you add to that an agency that's principal responsibility is to really avoid discipline for their officers, I shouldn't say principal, one of their major responsibilities, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's really difficult. It, it's interesting in these post-George Floyd weeks, where mm -hmm. when we're recording this now, th there's a lot of people who, have, who would normally be on the left who would be pro-union. Right. It seems kind of ironic that what they seem to be annoyed with is that the police union are being particularly good at being a union, which is to represent all of their workers. The tricky part is that there are a few bad cops in there that the good cops would be happy to be rid of. I agree with that, but I also wonder, right? It comes down to, to philosophically how you believe a union should act. Is it a duty to the whole, which I believe it is? And if so, isn't there a responsibility as, uh, to the majority of officers that even also do not want exactly. these officers on the force? Or is it, is it that they think that if I can defend the worst of us, you know, similar to how we think about our criminal justice, then I can defend all of you? I think there may be something to that. I've spoken to a few cops, you know, they're police officers, but they hate the FOP. They can't stand the fact that the FOP defends even the worst cops. But in the back of their mind, there is the reality that they're thinking it's a long 30 year career. 
I've got a camera on me all the time. And what if I screw up just that once? You know, I have a bad day. I'm otherwise a good cop. I have a bad day. Um, the kids are having problems at school. My partner's not feeling well. I've got a bunch of things going on, trouble with the supervisor, and I just have that one moment, things go south, I don't behave as well as I would like to have done. There is that kind of sense that, well, at least the FOP will go to bat for me on that one time in an otherwise unblemished career when I do something bad. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a really, really good point. I think a lot of police officers, rightfully or wrongfully, are at this point where they believe at any moment they can make a mistake that will impoverish their family and make them lose their job. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that's another reason why we need to be thoughtful as, a, as residents of the city, but who we're calling to be fired, dismissed, and gotten rid of. I worry that we're in a situation where somebody sees like a 10 second video and then the Twitter mob gets all amped up and they've made a judgment and they've decided somebody's guilty. They've seen a 10 second video and they've made that judgment. And their whole approach is, I will not stop until this person gets fired. And I worry that as a society, we've lost the capacity for understanding that sometimes there are genuine mistakes. Yeah, and, and also for, for, for just difference of opinion, frankly. I mean, I had a recent conversation with a police leader about the idea of saying Black Lives Matter and where police officers should come down on that and what their role should be. Now, this is a person that was actually a, a very nice person, a good guy. He vehemently disagrees with me on the idea that police officers should affirmatively and strongly state Black Lives Matter, period, right? He doesn't agree with that. Now, it would be kind of wrong of me to say that even though I feel really strongly about this, that I'm absolutely right and that there's no way he should feel this way. I mean, I might say that on Twitter that, you know, police leaders have to rethink this, but do I have the right to say he can't, he's incorrect about this? It kind of feels like it speaks to a lack of tolerance for different perspectives. In a previous episode of this podcast, Phil Goff explained pretty reasonably, I think, why saying all lives matter is a bit of an affront to black lives matter. And he makes a really cogent point about it, with which I agree. But there is space for people to have less understanding of this, right? But it's maybe that some people just need to have a discussion so that they can end up in a better informed place, right? I think that's correct. And so, you know, but we don't have that level of nuance in society right now. I think that right now we are expecting people to come fully baked. And the police department's guilty of this as well, that by virtue of your rank, you are prepared to do whatever we ask you to do. So that means uh, for a police captain, being able to not only engage with the community, but solve crime, lead troops, etc. Uh, and maybe you're only good at a few of those things. Or you're pretty mediocre at all of it right. because you only got the job of district captain last week. Right. In many cases, that is the case. I think about myself, how long it took me to get around to some of these ideas that racism was systemic. I had to go through my graduate programs, see a lot of work there, and I, I got there. I got, I got there as, as, a, as a younger man, but I, it, I wasn't something I came out of the womb knowing. And so, I prefer, and this is why I end up having these conversations with a lot of cops, to try and talk to people who are willing to have these conversations. And I fear that we could be losing some cops that we can bring around. I'm not saying indoctrinate, but losing some cops that we can bring around if we just cancel them all. Open to the slim possibility that the Twitter mob may not be right. Right. And I think that, frankly, many folks' immediate retort would be that this is what systemic racism looks like, right? That we are deferential to people that shouldn't be in power. And I get that, and I don't necessarily disagree, but we're talking about the people who are police right now and who are in charge right now. 
then I really don't know if we're doing ourselves any favor by canceling them, bringing the next guy up who we don't know who it is. Well, it's happened with a few police chiefs. Right. And you're losing a lot of experience and potential allies there. Exactly right. And, and I think that at the hyper-local level, we see that also. Atlanta, Erica Shields was the police chief in Atlanta. A very positive feedback for walking amongst people, talking to crowds after post-George right. Floyd. Then they had a shooting for which arguably she wasn't responsible. She was off duty and it was a cop out in the district. Right. Um, she resigned. Mm -hmm. Chris Magnus in Tucson, Arizona, mm -hmm. who's a previous interviewer on this podcast, had an incident that took place in April and he offered his resignation, which wasn't accepted by the city. But right. Yeah, I worry that how many people we're prepared to lose who are potential allies for change. I mean, I'll add Commissioner Outlaw to that list, all right? She got here in February, which is about five months into her tenure here. There's a healthy number of people saying resign. Commissioner Outlaw came from uh, Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. and moved the whole different policing style to a much larger department in a city of like, Philadelphia. And there were calls to resign within weeks. Right. When it's just impossible to hold her accountable for a department she inherited. And I actually think she's great. So I'm not saying, oh, we got, we're settling. But what are we really asking for? And are we sure we want what we're asking for? The counterfactual is not there. We, you, know, <laughs> you, you may get the resignation that the Twitter mob is demanding, right. but what are you going to get after that? Yes, exactly right. And that's a concern that not, not a lot of folks really understand. When we get a police leader that's willing to, as Commissioner Outlaw did, talk about the need for reform and talk about historical racism, that's new to Philadelphia. Well, the worry might be that you get rid of Commissioner Outlaw. And commissioners are often, they seem to be products of the time in which right. they're hired. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Outlaw was brought in at a time when improving relationships with the community was deemed important. But with violent crime rising in Philadelphia, homicides up over 20%, that we end up with a crime commissioner, right. which a lot of people in the city would want but that also then reset the clock on some other areas. Yeah, and my bigger fear, and I know we share this, is some of these data-naive commissioners who to just take their practice wisdom and apply it to real policy. Right, And so, in and, their experience. In their experience. Which and, is, can be disastrous. And, and we both met these police leaders uh, who say things like lowering the jail population are a direct line to high violence without any data to support it. It's just their intuition. And that's scary if you're a police leader. It's scary for me anyway. Yeah. Right. We're coming out of COVID-19. We're coming out of the biggest protests that we've mm -hmm. seen in a generation. We're looking at generational unemployment. I don't think anybody has any idea what the next few months are going to look like. And I think anybody who says they do doesn't know what they're talking about. And yeah. we need to be evaluating and monitoring all of this to, just in case we make some really bad decisions. But isn't that the brilliance of police chiefs? Historically, what they've done is something that academics won't do, which is to speak confidently about what's definitely going to happen and what problems they can definitely solve. Yes. All right. And that's great. You, you know? ask any academic yeah. and then we start off with, it depends. Yes. All right. And this is, this because is the key. Because we suck. Well, no. And also because you know there's so many factors. A police chief will go, I've seen it happen. They'll go in front of a city leaders or anyone and say, you give me 50 more cops or 500 more cops and I will solve this problem. And they say, okay, great. That guy's want to solve this problem. Bring in the academic. Well, it's going to depend on you know a lot of factors and uh, you know the weather's an issue, et cetera, et cetera. Right? <laughs> you actually sounded way more decisive there than most academics. <laughs> but that I think you know their confidence is inspiring, but maybe incorrectly inspiring. I don't know. So we're six months down the line. Philadelphia's figured out its budget. You've got everything that you've asked for, not just in terms of finances and money, but in terms of policy changes and legislation. What would the system that you put in place look like? I think it would certainly have direct access right, to officer personnel records, not necessarily their health records, but certainly their discipline records. 
body-worn camera footage would be a direct access issue as well. Policy review would be regular and ongoing. That would be kind of the policy arm of this office, right? So you're getting like a policy early warning system. Yeah, the early warning system, but certainly some element of a frontline investigation. You know, that's what people want. Do I think it's the best? Probably not, but do I think it's useful? Certainly. So some element of a frontline investigation that, that helps people get some resolution to their complaint involving a police officer. And some other element of, of a special investigations. Philadelphia is one of the larger jurisdictions that doesn't categorize pointing of a firearm as a use of force. We should be doing so, so we can understand how often residents of the city are having a gun pointed at them. Pull it out of the holster, yeah. you fill in some paperwork. And that's two different things. Are you, when you pull it, yes, and when you point it, yes. All right. If you're going to do it, tell me why. I, I would say all three. The gun, uh, pulling and pointing, and the taser pulling and pointing. I think that we should have at least a conversation about why that is, but I still think that's a role for us to play. The idea that we are bringing these things to the fore for police leaders and confronting them with a, a simple question. Other jurisdictions are doing this. Here's the evidence behind it. Why don't we do it? And how would the system that you put in place protect those genuinely good officers that just made a mistake or, you know, had a bad day? I think the system as it works around the country still protects them because these are investigations on the administrative level that still rely on the commissioner's final say. If our findings are that the officer, they made a mistake, but not a dismissal worthy mistake. The commissioner's there and they can dissent and they don't have to actually uh, discuss it with us. They'll say, thank you for your recommendation, but we're not firing this police officer for this reason. There's no police commissioner in, this, in the country that I'm aware of that if, if they think they have a case not to fire a cop, they won't make it. So really what ends up happening is, as I understand it from my colleagues, that it's a, it's a, it mirrors the findings in many cases that the, um, that the Internal Affairs Division would have. It, it just may, it may be slightly different and, and, and there's more confidence in the residents of the city. Okay, I like that way of framing it because it says, look, this is pretty much what internal affairs would have found anyway, but it allows the police department to build some external validity. And they're free to challenge it and say, you made this determination, but your evidence was incorrect or your decision making was not sound. If they can do that, that would be uh, good for all involved. The healthy discourse is a good discourse, you know? It's been 20 years while I've been in Philadelphia, and we wow. seem to have gone a... I know. <laughs> I've, I've really picked up the accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we seem to have gone through a stage, and I don't know where we are right now, but in the past, there's always been a concern with the many good cops in Philadelphia, and in many places have said to me, it, it's sometimes difficult working with cops who have got very questionable records and having to work alongside them. Post-George Floyd, there seems to be an urge to shift that. Mm -hmm. Have we shifted that, and not necessarily here in Philadelphia, but in other places, have we shifted that too far? Have we overcorrected? Or, or yeah. are we in danger of doing that? I certainly think that there is a, more of a call for accountability post-George Floyd and other high-profile instances. I think that internally we can do a way better job. For the average resident of the city, the facts remain that an officer that they believe should have been held accountable wasn't, regardless of the reasons why they weren't. We, we fast forward to 2020, post-George Floyd, and we have uh, police leaders, most recently here in Philadelphia, a police captain, who didn't think, say the right words that people wanted him to say as it related to Black Lives Matter. And this was at a community meeting. Right. So what he said was, Black li yes, Black Lives Matter and White Lives Matter and Native American Lives Matter and, and Hispanic Lives Matter. And so he said all of them. And then he, so he was effectively saying all lives matter. I, I kind of already said this was a guy that I don't think was prepared to have this conversation. And I don't think prepared at all. But what I find interesting is how many people wanted him fired for his inability to, to understand these things.
And that, I think, is a pendulum swift that might be too far because of what it means to not understand these issues. Well, it's not just not understanding, but also you run the risk then that everybody will just parrot the appropriate phrase, but not actually think about it in a critical sense about what is actually being asked. And, and we've seen that here in Philly. I'm talking specifically about the conversation about anti-racism. We talk about anti-racism on a regular basis. It's now part of like our regular discourse. I defy most of the folks who talk about it to really define it for me. It's just become this thing that we say because it's now part of the, you know, how we discuss our training around race and racism. And so I think you're correct and there's real life examples. Let's try and work with folks and I think canceling all of them might be a bad way of moving forward practice. Well, that's the difference, isn't it, between training and education? Right. Training would be, here's the five phrases that will get you out of problems in a community meeting. Mm -hmm. Education is, here's some of the issues that are around it. Right. Let's start to think and discuss what this actually means for people in the community and their relationship with the police department. Right. The second is education. It's much harder to do. The first is, yeah. here's a cheat sheet. And Jerry, you know, I love that point. I'm going to steal it if you don't mind, because... I rarely have a moment, but <laughs> right? you're welcome to it. No, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Another one will come around when uh, Haley's comments back. There'll be no credit given to you either. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, as a social worker, I had to learn about all of the atrocities of my profession and all of the stuff that we did to the infancy of the profession that led people to believe that we were a racist, judgy profession. I don't believe you should be able to get to a certain rank or even become a police officer without being educated about the profession that you're going into and specifically the uniform that you're wearing and what it might mean to people. There's so much here that I think is fascinating. I think this is really a dynamic area that's going to be changing a lot, mm -hmm. not just here in Philadelphia, but also across the United States. Yeah. So hopefully we'll stay in touch and maybe have you back to, to see where things are going in a year or two's oh, time. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope that we can, uh, we can catch up. We'll be cheersing over a new oversight board with new powers, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Jerry. It was a pleasure. That was episode 26 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Philadelphia in July 2020. Since this episode was recorded, the Philadelphia Police Department's use of force policy has been amended and now includes documenting the unholstering or pointing of a service weapon. Transcripts of every episode are available at reducingcrime.com podcast. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Be safe and best of luck.